0: It's okay to get it wrong, but to have the resilience to learn and persist. The useful stuff for me
1: was about taking control, so not just allowing your circumstances to dictate
0: what your outlook is. I did not know I had it in me to get out the depths of the sickness and the pain and the mental anguish I was going through.
1: Hi, welcome to the Pylon Ultra Pod, we are live now, our first episode was released last week, it's out there and it's in people's ears. Thanks so much to anyone who listened and supported our first step into the world of podcasting. We really appreciate the shares, the subscriptions and suggestions. It's all new to us, so we are learning and we do appreciate you for being with us on this journey. This week we thought it'd be a good idea to pick up on some of the areas we touched on last week in episode 1. You can go back and listen to that episode after this, it's up on iTunes, Spotify and most other podcast players. And you can find more details about it on the website at pylonultra.com forward slash podcast. So in that episode I talked a bit about the Barclay Marathons race which I was due to run a few weeks ago. For anyone who doesn't know anything about the race we're aware obviously that not everybody who hear this podcast is a runner. We'll put a link in the show notes to a YouTube video I did last year after my first attempt which didn't exactly go to plan but it will give you a good understanding and a good feel for the event itself. In that discussion in episode one James asked me about the one thing I've learned about myself after a really challenging start to the year and I talked about adaptability and how at times like these, with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's one of the most overlooked attributes in people for both athletes and non-athletes, and it determines how prepared we are to deal with change. So this episode, we'll talk more about that. We'll talk about how we might learn to be adaptable ahead of challenging times, and how running has become a way for us to practice being adaptable to positively impact our lives and those around us. So I'm joined again by my good friend James Stewart, GB 24-hour runner and senior pylon coach. James, I know, has some good examples and some very recent thinking when it comes to adaptability. He holds down a senior position in a large service-based company that's having to radically shift its planning and operations in response to the coronavirus and he's faced significant issues in ultra races that have helped to shape how he approaches his longer-term running ambitions and his longer-term life goals. We also have some more questions from our community, which we'll discuss later on. So here is episode two of the Pylon Ultra pod. Hi James, thanks for being here again. We've made it through our first episode. It's out there and it's live. How does that feel?
0: It feels awesome. It's been really, really good and seeing how it's been received and some of the private messages and some of even the public support we've had has been quite humbling. So I'm really glad we did it. I know we were trying to be a bit bold by going at yep. it at pace yeah. and it feels really worthwhile.
1: That's good. And what what do you think you've learned from the first one? What would you change or or what you're taking into future episodes?
0: I would I would say that even when we're talking this stuff out that we're refreshing our own knowledge and actually there's a couple of things I talked about last week that were really important reminders for me of the way I need to think and behave as well. It's not not just telling people to do stuff, but also reminding myself that I have to act that as well. Um, And that was really important because oftentimes we, we are really good at being advice monsters, but then forgetting actually to look after ourselves. So I took a couple of things away from it last week to do myself, which was nice.
1: Yeah, it's good. It's good to get some honest feedback from people as well. There's some things that you just didn't really think of that were almost too obvious that, that we missed them, you know, um, like maybe considering who the audience might be who's listening to this and, and maybe not everybody who's going to listen to this is an ultra runner already. So lots of good learnings anyway, uh, that we can take on other than my heavy breathing, James. Oh well, that's
0: okay, man. <laughs> Which I was very <laughs> conscious of on a microphone. But,
1: and everybody's Take... going to listen out now, but never mind. You can uh, pay so... good
0: money for that some places, Paul. So, um, <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, let's crack on, please. Um, so we were going to talk about adaptability. I don't think it's a topic that's discussed all that much. There's lots of thinking right now about awareness and about authenticity. Historically, people could be ranked by intelligence levels. IQ scores were a thing in the past can you even believe that really but there has been there has been a shift in the last few years to talk more about emotional intelligence so the ability to understand to use and manage your own emotions and to have the ability to read and feel it in others and and to maybe use that in positive ways to communicate with other people to overcome challenges to empathize and just be a bit more socially aware and I think that's a great thing Uh, but fewer people are really having conversations about adaptability and although Um, I actually doing some research for this podcast I did see it referenced for the first time as AQ so in line with IQ for your intelligence level and EQ for emotional awareness there is a thing, AQ now apparently so maybe if I could start from a work perspective on your side of things uh, and then we'll focus on the athletic side do you have a large team and for some of your managerial roles I'm sure you'll be closely involved in the recruitment process so, how do you get a sense of adaptability attributes from a potential candidate, for example? And how do you think adaptability ranks in terms of importance in, in team environments, which you're closely involved with?
0: I mean, it's super, super, super critical. And in, 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 in an organization that like I work within, you know, and we, we won't go into the details of what I do and who I work for because um, that wouldn't be right on, on the podcast. But needless to say, it's a big organization with responsibility for learning for a lot of people. Um, And we're an organization who have to react very quickly to what's going on in the market. So when something changes in the market, we can't just sit back and go, well, what will we do? We have to be very quick at adapting and reacting to that. So adaptability becomes a core component of what you need from the people within your business. So in order to kind of get the right people to support you with that, it can be quite difficult because you can't measure. It's not like, as you described earlier, like IQ, go and do this Mensa test and off you go. Yeah. And it's not also in that kind of lazy Myers-Briggs world where people do colours and they give themselves the yeah. four letters yeah. and all of a sudden, they, they actually they become caricatures of the personality that the computer spat back at them. And that's really useful information. But all it is is preference. It's all it is. But we get caught up in actually going, that becomes my trait. But when it comes to adaptability, it can be really hard to truly get that from someone in a short Mm -hmm. interviewing conversation so when when i'm interviewing someone to try and get their aq and their eq attributes they're much more important to me than intelligence and knowledge yeah i'm getting into a conversation with them because what I'm doing in a conversation with them, I'm trying to work out where their strengths are because they're much more than, than even experience and that, that level of intelligence they have because the strengths are what we're going to build on and I'm looking for I'm looking for certain triggers within the, the conversation I'm having with them. So what, what am I looking for? I'm looking for people who are open-minded and forward-thinking. So when you present them with a problem, they immediately move into that, I can fix this and I'm going to do the right things to fix this. And even though they don't know what the answer is, they've got belief that they can get the answer because they've been through and over that course before. And I think something that's really underappreciated as a trait that goes alongside adaptability is creativity. Because it's the creativity that allows you to adapt because you have to come up with new or different ways or, or bring together an amalgam of ideas and turn them into um, a new way forward. So when I'm talking to someone and trying to bring them into the team, then I think it's important we talk about how we get the right person and then we'll talk yeah. about what I'm looking for in them. I'm asking yeah. questions all the way through. Sorry, Paul, you were going to ask something. No, it
1: just uh, your point about creativity is an interesting one. It's maybe something we can talk about uh, more fully in, in a later episode. In that you might and You don't necessarily have to be working in a creative environment to need those skills with where you work and who you work with as well. And it, it's it's very underrated, I think, and uh, it's not something that you would necessarily look to find in some kind of interview or recruitment process either.
0: No, absolutely not. So when, so when I'm doing an interview, I'm not doing competency-based interviews. I'm not sitting down and go, tell me a time about... yeah. And, and then it's like basically what you're getting there from someone is they're just throwing their past glories at, you know, things that they've done that they've probably honed their their speech back to you on over loads and loads of practice. I'm asking questions like, oh, you've got a couple of kids. How do, how do you deal with them when like maybe two of them are crying at the same time and you're only one in the house? and. Yeah you want to get a really kind of human centric answer from them. You know, it's like, yeah, so it's quite stressful, you know, because actually you can't be in two places at once and you actually want to hear the truth. And actually that vulnerability that we talked about about last week starts to come through because that takes away arrogance or, or narrow mindedness and actually says, you know what, it's okay to struggle a wee bit. So when you're having that chat, you're, when I'm having the chat with them, I'm really doing kind of strengths-based conversations. I'm asking them about how they react to certain situations. Like, it could be anything. Like, what do you do if the milk's run out um, and you've got, you know, you've got no solution to that, but you've still got a kid to feed? How would you deal with that? And then, you know, you want to hear what they say there because actually you're giving them real-life problems. So going back to that kind of idea of being a parent because you're disarming them and taking them away from their workplace comfort zone, the, you know, the shirt and tie or the, the power suit. Yeah. And actually trying to turn and find out who the human is. So what you're looking for and why it's important is, is teams need people who are adaptable because they can set the scene. And we talked about diverse thinking um, a lot offline from this conversation. But adaptable people help fire out the ability to have diverse thinking across a team. So long as they've all got that different range of strengths and um, characteristics. Because that then means that the team is... All getting the benefit of that adaptability, and not just the individual. Yeah. So, but you're looking, you're looking for these individuals to have a willingness to push boundaries and yeah. to try new things. So that's the first thing. And it's okay to get it wrong. It's okay to get it wrong, but to have the resilience to learn and persist. So that's point one. Does that make sense?
1: It does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I I think there's a good reason for us to talk about this in a, in a kind of corporate work environment initially because I think everything that we say here can then be you know pushed over into your athletic career and your training and your racing as well too so um I think it's a good place for us to start and then I was thinking if say for example adaptability was an easy Thing to measure in someone so you could sit down in in that kind of process and look at somebody and they could give you some examples of how they've been able to adapt do you think it would rank higher than some other measures that are that are regarded as being more important
0: um higher it's really subjective it's it's hard almost to say yes or no to that mm. um, and i guess it's probably quite situational but i think i think the way you need to look at it is is when when we when we bring in and and you're right, absolutely right you bring this into the kind of corporate context you can always you can almost look at knowledge and skills right um and there's there isn't a, 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 on the hierarchy scale there probably isn't the same kind of hierarchy as there is in knowledge like if you're in IT and what have you because yeah. skills skills are like tools in your toolbox. They're like hammers and spanners and saws and monkey wrenches and all that stuff. And it'd be the complete package, you probably need a wide range of tools. Yeah. So over indexing on one is going to leave you a bit pigeonholed. So if you're super adaptable but you're um not very good at decision making, it's probably quite it's probably useless having that because it's decision making you might need in order to you know build on the strength of adaptability so i don't think there's a hierarchy that says adaptability is top of the tree then after that it's resilience and then after that it's so on and so yeah. forth because i think they all complement each other and um, and that's the same in life working in, in in sport it's it's super important as a skill in its own right but it has to play part of a wider toolbox of skills
1: yeah i mean i've actually i've, I've read some examples of some investors now are kind of measuring potential investments based on uh, their ability to adapt. So they're asking those questions about around, you know, uh, well, what would happen if your main income stream dried up? What would you do? Rather than it being, you know, just experience based or just your background that you come from the right type of university or, or whatever as well. So I think it's quite an interesting point. And then I had a great message from an athlete this week. Uh, we had set them a thinking task during the week as well as their normal training. And she had talked about people in this sport, especially always talking about developing mental toughness, right? It's a phrase you see all the time um, and you can you can buy a number of books on mental toughness and developing it. Uh, but she raised a really valid point for me and it was a good reminder um, that some of us can get really stuck in that in both life and in training. Being tough and when you actually break that down, it's that's about resisting. It's almost about putting up walls. Uh, you know, you can't hurt me kind of thing. But maybe that stops us actually being vulnerable and maybe terms like resilience and adaptability are, are much better to be aiming for rather than I just want to be mentally tough
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean look listen I'm really passionate about this um, this point here I really I, I just don't dig on that whole faux macho part I, I really don't the whole can't hurt me stick from Goggins I think it's a great set of stories he tells how, how he tells it yeah well you know it's a great set of stories and he tells it and he owns his story brilliantly right and I can see how it attracts a lot of acolytes. But after reading his book and watching a few videos, I couldn't help dislike the concept. And I hate to say it, and it might be a bit controversial, I didn't really take to him as an individual as a result either we're not all navy seals and to expect us to, to be so would be downright silly and that whole can't hurt me i'm mentally tough i'm going to do this with a broken leg and all that stuff that's a dangerous message to send to people telling someone for example "just the man up is like telling a flu victim to stop sneezing they'll be fine or someone who's depressed to cheer up it's so much more than that and your point around resilience and adaptability are, i think are much better terms to me mental toughness is like an outcome trait of things like optimism, adaptability, resilience, enthusiasm, passion, curiosity, risk appetite. You could add to that list over and over and over again In and of, of itself I don't think it's anything. It's just a, it's two words thrown together. Um and it but it's a wrapper for all those other terms and if we fixate on those two words we leave ourselves dangerously neglecting other much more important things. Is yeah. kind of my take on it.
1: Yeah, I mean I I I understand I understand why they would use those terms and I think it helps to sell books, particularly when it's something that people are very aware of and it's it's almost fashionable at the moment to be mentally tough and, and you'll sell some books on the back of it. But maybe from his side of things, in defence of the book, maybe some of his key messages were lost in that in that hype almost. And I think the useful stuff for me was about taking control, so not just allowing your circumstances to dictate what your outlook is so not letting your past experiences limit your thinking uh, or hampering your ambition and i like i like that about him and his book yes i agree i have issues with the whole you know run through anything at all costs what we're doing going into races and tough races they're they're actually manufactured situations so it, it to me it doesn't feel like it's the right thing to continue running on broken legs you know to finish hurt 100 or whatever it was if you're if you're shackleton and you're trying to you know you're in antarctica and you're trying to stay alive then that's when you that's when you run on broken legs you know so yeah i got a fair amount from the book but i, I i'm not one for the whole macho you know you can't hurt me run through anything and, and never never give up there are yeah. times to walk away yeah
0: and and I, and I think i probably got turned off by that because as i said there was a whole bunch of really good underlying messages there but what worried me was some of the those dangerous headlines that ha- that could that could put people in. That could put people in a bit of danger on a personal health point of view. Almost that way that if you're not suffering enough, if you're not suffering to failure, you're not suffering enough. That whole Navy Seal mentality. It does doesn't work for me. I think I'm more about growing human mindset and becoming the best athlete you can, but also doing that alongside having a great life. Um, and you know, and a, and a great balance. And I I felt that was lost a wee bit in that whole can't hurt me story.
1: Yeah, it's it's maybe a societal thing though that we we seem to be so desperate for snippets and quotes and headlines. You know, that's all we seem to to want, and and those are the things we remember rather than the underlying story and the underlying thinking. But yeah,
0: yeah. So listen, Paul, if you're a Goggins fan, don't at me. Um, it's all so good. Adam, it's just... Please, Adam, everybody, <laughs> <laughs> take them down on social media. Oh, it has no. to happen, I'm bother.
1: Right to get back to uh, the running side of things now, we've obviously talked about the corporate environment and, and how it can be useful there. You've personally, you've had some tricky races. You've been racing long enough now that you're going to have some difficult races and difficult situations. You've run some big races that just didn't go to plan, despite all the work that you'd put in and all the planning that you'd done. Races where you really had to adapt. And I wondered if you could maybe tell us about a particular time, maybe in a GB vest, because there's arguably a wee bit more pressure on as well, and and how that how that came about, and and what you learned from that, really.
0: Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um. In my running career, up until sort of twenty seventeen, it was almost quite progressive, almost linear improvement every time, and then I got my first GB vest in twenty seventeen, running the the world champs in Northern Ireland, and. It didn't go brilliant because at about 108 miles or something like that, and I was in a decent position in the race. Um, my hamstring goes and I've got a grade 2 tear, which puts me out for a few weeks afterwards, but also meant I really couldn't safely continue. Back to that um, can't hurt me thing I was just talking about a minute ago, it would have been long-term damage if I'd continued, and the physio the who was there, Guy, he would have pulled me anyway if I hadn't made the decision to drop. That was heartbreaking. And I got the chance to go back in 20 eighteen um, to run at the European Championships in Romania.
1: Yeah. So
0: that was my that was going to be my redemption. And you'll know Paul obviously through the coaching I'd went into that in absolutely sensational condition. I was in the best condition of my life. I'd been doing sports testing just to test that and that was all the numbers that were coming out there were brilliant. So I'm getting in there feeling great. I mean it's a twenty four hour race so any number of things can go wrong and Everything's going fine. I mean, it's 30-odd degrees and the humidity's in the 80s or whatever it was, so not great from a, a, a boy from Croy trying to run round
1: in that heat. <laughs> the boy from Croy.
0: Exactly. But we were, we were managing it and then things just started to go wrong. Nausea and sickness, all of that comes on me. I start moonwalking through the field. I'm, I've gone from in the top 10 and I'm down in the 30s. And all the while, the pressure that I was really suffering with was I was letting the team down, right? But, I remember saying even though I dropped down the field I remember saying to Elson James Elson who was who was on the team as well about 12 hours and I'd done about 74, 75 miles at this point. I said I will still run more than 150 miles, which is a modest number. But this was me trying to psychologically tell myself I would get through this. I was being sick. I was struggling to even yeah. run a lap. But I was like, I will get through this. And when I get through this, the energy that I'm not expending now is going to come to burn in the second half of the race. That's what I was telling myself. But the big challenge was how did I get, how did, how could I adapt from the the pain and nausea I was in to come out the other side of it and two things were really key on that and you talked about adaptability in a team earlier the the race crew, the team supporting us were absolutely critical because they never gave up on me even though I was struggling because they knew I could be important in the race Um, and so it turned out to be they never gave up on me and they kept trying to find solutions to the nausea so take a bit of salt, have some flat coke, putting salt into the coke and then we we hit upon a rhythm of nutrition, which was, yeah quite literally, a Maryland cookie every two laps. And then a, every other alternate lap was a handful of Pringles with some flat coke. That's what I survived the last 10 hours of that race. Some, on. some good quality nutrition there, James. The, well, you know what? It's not Michelin star, but it got me through. <laughs> but that took a lot of persistence and trying different things. You were going from jelly yeah. babies to... We were putting gels into... Um, into the the water bottles we're putting gel into water because we knew we had to get carbohydrates and at some point we had to get that around and then that that nutrition started to work for me so that's going to help me get out um out of there and then I did something else which I've never actually told anybody before even when I've talked about this um and I, I was I was playing a mind game with um Mel Hollyoak Steve Hollyoak's sister-in-law and she was seated halfway around the course and every lap I made a conscious effort, no matter how bad I was feeling, to smile and interact with Mel positively, and then to try and hit yeah. the ripple effect of that to last for a longer time. So yeah. I even if it, it's
1: a minute after that, it's positive, isn't
0: it? Exactly. And what we were doing, I remember two key things I was doing. One was I would ask her a question all the way around, like a trivia question, like who sang this song, what's this lyric from, just a, just to get kind of interaction. Um, I remember doing that and I remember we ended up talking about the Manic Street Preachers and George Orwell, can you believe that? And then there was a star next to the moon and I remember saying I think that's serious, can you check that out for me? And Mel went away and checked it but those interactions gave me something to look forward to every 8 minutes and after the race Mel said to me, I didn't know you were struggling because in that moment I was presenting a front that then became the, the normal so I had to adapt the mindset that I was trying to make that that moment strong to, into the rest of the, the lap and I did that through the, the you know the mental techniques, the earworms and then interacting with all the runners. So you were just looking for something to hook onto to take your mind off what had gone wrong to do what can get better. Does that make sense?
1: It does, yeah. So that race do you think has made you ultimately made you a better athlete in that you're you're more adaptable or you have greater um Understanding of, of what you can do and what you can push through if you have to change things last minute, like an entire nutrition plan.
0: Yes, a hundred percent. I did not know I had it in me to get out the depths of the sickness and the pain and the mental anguish I was going through because remember the year before had been a disaster and this was my second G B vest and if this this one hadn't gone well, I wouldn't have been selected again and I'd have let the team down again. That's the kind of things you're going through. But now, I am, I not only believe I can come up with a solution and adapt to whatever circumstances happen within a race, Also, I don't believe that anymore. I now know it, and that's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Cool. I think you've got some competition news competition for us, Competition
0: time. Yeah, okay, then. We've got a competition for you. So we, Paul and I, are super keen to see where this podcast takes us and hope to have more people feel part of the piling community that we already have. That's good people doing amazing things and supporting each other as we do it. So if you'd like to help us spread the reach of our podcast and you get something positive from it, please subscribe and leave a comment after this episode. We're going to give away a handful of exclusive piling buffs to a handful of people and we're going to select some winners in the next show. So get reviewing, get subscribing, get commenting, get sharing. And get winning. Listen in next time round to see if you are a winner.
1: Brilliant. I practiced I that James. loads of times. Straight, straight off the <laughs> oh, I, didn't, I don't think you did. I was off the yeah, bat. Nice. Yeah, I practiced
0: that loads of times before I come right. on to get my audio. <laughs> <laughs> it's good you should be on TV, uh... James. Paul, adaptability to, to you. Do you think there's steps that you can take to improve it as well?
1: Yeah, I do, uh, and I I don't think it has to be hugely complicated, and I don't think it necessarily has to be in situations like you were in uh, where you're running around that track and you're running in a GB vest. I think there's things you can do to practice that um, that you can think about from now. So I think two things that are worth thinking about for people are, and the first one really is... It's like simulation, so asking those what-if questions and taking the time to think of through some potential scenarios ahead of time. So if you're going into a big race, for example, you can have a think about some of the things from left field that might go wrong in the event. So that could be things like what happens if my crew don't turn up at the halfway point? What happens if my drop bag isn't there when I get the halfway point at UTMB, which is, has happened to me? and. At the time, it was probably a bit of a panic and a drama, which it didn't necessarily have to be. Um, or what if I break my poles in a big mountain race or I leave them in an aid station? What are you going to do then? And for me, it's it's worth it's worth doing that for some of those scenarios because some of the scenarios are, are maybe likely things that could happen. Like what happens if you know I feel a pain on, on my left side that I've been having in training? What am I going to do about it? Those kind of things you can actually think of through the actual scenarios themselves. But for me, the purpose isn't, to rehearse every situation just in case it happens because there's just too many to do but more that you're trying to train your mind to think about solutions quickly so equally from a business point of view you're asking questions like what, what would I do if my entire income stream dried up you know there was a terrible virus and and shoppers couldn't come to my outlet to to buy things or whatever and um, asking yourself those what if questions are, are a really powerful way for you to try and think more quickly and be much more adaptable when they do happen and then the second one is going back to your idea around curiosity and unlearning and exploration so not thinking the way you do things is the only way or the best way to do it and the minute you think you've mastered something is really the time you start closing off to new thinking and new opportunities Um, and I think people always make the mistake of thinking that once they get this really good result and it might be that i got this really great finish in a race or you know i got under 24 hours for doing that 100 miler or i stepped onto the podium for the first time whatever that they try and almost exploit that same formula over and over again so it's almost moving away from exploiting those scenarios to exploring new ones you know um so like a great example we're all aware of that, that from a business side of things is the whole Blockbuster Video and, and Netflix and Blockbuster Video had the opportunity to to be Netflix or to, to be part of Netflix or to be the next Netflix and, and they thought they were in the business of renting DVDs and videos and they were number one and they had however many outlets. But they couldn't see where things were going and they didn't really ask themselves those questions and they weren't willing to explore uh, what that might look like in the future and I think that's really important from a running point of view to to do that um, and not just continue on that same formula because you'll see it James probably sometimes I, I find um, maybe somebody's going back to do a race two or three times and it's a race that they love doing and you know, maybe their goals change every time or whatever but um, they have a really good race, say it's the second time they've done the race, it goes really well um, their training's been great up to the race they have a great performance, they're very happy they're going into the race again on the third year potentially Um, and something maybe happens in training that upsets the routine of what they had done the previous year and and people can get really caught up in that and and really do damage to themselves thinking well I'm not as fit as I was this time last year or I hadn't done those long runs that I did last year but I think it's not necessarily a bad thing all the time and it's it's certainly not a positive mental place to be Um, and if we are able to adapt more quickly to that and think right okay well I wasn't able to do those long runs because I was feeling injured for a two week period and I didn't do those same length of runs but you're actually carrying a lot of energy then because you've been resting more that you can take in and you can train better in the next two weeks than you could have in the previous year so uh, I think it's about just thinking about things a little bit differently and not being prepared to just do things the way you always do things. I mean
0: I think there's so much rich stuff you've talked through there Paul and I I love the fact that you're talking about that whole what if and thinking about scenarios but not right down to that minutiae because it might be any range of things but something's going to happen and how you choose to react will dictate how successful your next action is so not anchoring yourself in the present and failing to anticipate the future will mean that you will move with the flow so really really good stories there thank you
1: right uh, as we did last week we are keen to hear from you so we thought we'd play back one of our community questions. This time it's from Kevin. Uh, so thanks for sending us in these questions. I think it's a really useful way for us to think differently and to understand what's on other people's minds. Uh, so if you want to send in any questions at all, please do so by text or by voice, and you can send them to talk to me at pylonultra.com. Uh, and hopefully you'll hear yourself on this podcast soon. Hey guys, how's it going? Hope you're all well. So my question, um, I think uh, as runners, most of us can relate to this and it is the dreaded fear of failure. So my question would be how has failure or a perceived failure in a certain situation set you up for success at a later date and to go along with that Do you have a favourite time when you have failed that you use as either inspiration to help yourself or to help others succeed? All right, hope you're all well. Cheers, man. I think it's a very common thinking pattern and it does hold a lot of us back, myself included at times. And it leads really well into the next episode where I'll talk a little bit more about my journey to this position and how I maybe managed to overcome that fear uh, that was that was crippling me at times. Um, and it's still something I need to work on. Uh, but this podcast itself is quite a good example. Um, you know, I'm opening myself to being criticised. Uh, I'm doing something... That's quite personal, but it's obviously very public as well. It's a podcast, but it's something I've worked a lot on um, before I started coaching. And even now, as my running and my business progresses, James, you're obviously, um, you appear to be very confident in in your actions and your decisions. And I don't think that just happens on its own. You know, I don't think people are just born to be confident or anything. Um, is there a good example for you then of, of, particular failings that have maybe helped you grow or ways that have helped you to overcome a fear of yeah, failure yeah
0: yeah i've got a couple of really good examples from my work life um, and i'll share them and maybe just talk a wee bit more about how i really don't like the term fear of failure and failure itself and maybe maybe reference some yeah. stuff people can look up and, and and maybe do a wee bit more study on a couple of things one have you ever been paid off from a job paul have you ever actually been laid off
1: uh, no no not in the redundancy kind of terms no um, i haven't
0: i got laid off from a job when i was about i don't know maybe 20 um 1920 um mm-hmm. and it was my dad who laid me off to keep to keep other people on <laughs> now how could how could andy do that that's failure that is failure you know even your dad won't keep you on but actually what he was doing there it was he'd seen that the failure that i was going through was i'd become comfortable with the money i was earning working on a building site and there was two problems with that yeah. one it meant that i wasn't using the the smarts and the intelligence i had to go and do something more meaningful and he could see that and the second thing was i am absolutely inept at anything physical when it comes to work and there was, a, a, the building site was closing down, um, the company were fine, but the, the site we were working on, the job had finished, and you normally what you do is you then move the squads to other sites, but there was no other work, and it would have been wholly wrong to keep me on at the expense of a better worker who would want, it, who that was their bread and butter for feeding their family for the rest of their lives, and my dad's seen that the right thing to do was to let me go. Now, in that moment, you're like, that's a bit of a shock but it was probably one of the most important things that's ever been done so that was a big learning there about making a taking a tough decision that might in the moment feel wrong and like failure but actually could be seismic in your life going forward so that's that was example 1 example 2 was and was when i got a job um and i was working at lloyds banking group at the time it might have been tsb before it became lloyds but anyway um and i got a job working in a department where it was like go for the interview you're going to get the job go for the interview you're going to get the job and the guy in HR who interviewed me for it refused to um, give me the job because he believed I was arrogant I thought the job was mine I didn't come across well there was a whole bunch of things that he, he talked through and only the senior manager who was doing the recruiting coerced him into allowing it to happen HR had a big say in these things back then but only as a secondment so He was basically like, I am adamant this guy is going to fail in this job because he's not got the right behaviours and attitudes. And what what had happened, Paul, was I had believed my own hype. And actually, I was that away from not getting a job that would change the the entire path of my career because I went in there thinking I was was basically Billy Big Boss, to use a Scottish phrase. And I think there was a real big learning there because that was near cataclysmic career failure that was happening because of my own actions.
1: Although was that a fear of failure you weren't going you weren't going in there thinking I'm not going to get this job you were almost the opposite you were going in there thinking I am I'm going to get this and then out of the back of it potentially not happening it was only then you maybe realized that you could you could have failed in that or do you think because you got the job, despite what HR had maybe suggested that you, you weren't the right person for the job, did that did that drive you further when you were in that job then to prove prove them wrong? In that job, though? but it
0: also gave me a really important life lesson. You're right, in that moment, it was actually disrespecting the possibility of not succeeding and not meeting my intention that put me in a position where failure became a very real possibility. Um, and I have sworn blind... And this is 20 years ago. I have sworn blind that I'll never, ever put myself in that position again, that I will always respect and put my best effort into anything I do. That was a massive learning for me. And actually, I then, I guess, I guess out of that, learned to respect that failure is always something that can happen, but also something you can have some control over.
1: Yeah. I mean, you you see it a lot in racing. I've suffered it as well. And, and people will come out of a race that they didn't, perhaps achieved the result that they had wanted before the race started but there, there could be a massively successful performance ultimately. So you might go into a race and you have it in your head, that it's a 100-mile race and I, I really want to finish in 20 hours and I want to be in the top five, for example. So then you get a quarter of the way into the race and something happens. One of those scenarios we talked about earlier, you know, you've, I don't know, something's broken or you're feeling pain in your hip that, you know, has been happening in training or something, and... Um, But then you continue to push on and and, and in a safe way, not in a David Goggins push on way. But um, you're you're committed to getting to the end, even though um, you're not going to hit the results that you'd set out beforehand. And that's quite a difficult thing for athletes, I think, because I've done it myself. You know, I come out of that race and I'm I'm disappointed. I never got what I think I should have done and what I trained for. But actually, you know, I've run three quarters of that race not feeling my best or something went wrong or I I took the wrong route, for example, and I lost two hours, you know, going the wrong way or whatever. It's still an incredible performance. It might not be the result that you wanted um, and then people feel like they've failed. If they're not in that mindset, it feels like a failure when it it shouldn't really because you can only you can only you can only handle the circumstances that are in front of yeah, 100%, you. Yeah,
0: hundred percent, And I'd just like to maybe try and spend a couple of minutes maybe reframing fa- fear of failure into um a, a, maybe another term. Because ultimately, I think if you go into something with the fear of failure or the or over-indexing on the potential of not meeting your intention and succeeding on whatever level you decide success yeah. is at yeah then that is going to inhibit your ability to give your best performance potentially from the outset and dave allred who's a guy who coached johnny wilkinson and um molinari francesco molinari not eduardo and um, to win his first golf major he talks about how you you manage this so much better and, and instead of going I might fail, so say I'm a golfer who's leading on the last day of a major tournament and then don't win. I might look at that as failure. Whereas he would say, Well actually putting yourself in a position where success was something that was in your hands and you could have you could have achieved is a massive, massive um positive And the more you do that, the more it gives you the opportunity to meet your intention. So the intention would be, take Molinari, the way he talks about it is is Molinari's intention was to win a major tournament. And it maybe took 10, 15, 20 majors of those two working together for Molinari to do it. That doesn't mean he failed 19 times before. It just meant he never met his intention, but he was gathering more and more and more information that would help him reach that intention when the time was right.
1: Yeah, I think that's critical in, in races especially. It's almost like reassessing what, what would be a good outcome when, when you're in that situation. So you might have set out thinking, I want to be in top 10 and uh, with the last 10 to 20 miles, if I'm not in the top 10, I'm going to be disappointed. And, and something's gone wrong, you've had a bad stomach or you couldn't quite you know, get enough fluid down or whatever it was, then you you still don't have to give up and think, well, the rest of this race is pointless you know you can be thinking well there's a guy up there that i can see he's 100 meters ahead i'm going to see if i can stick with him for the next 10 miles and then and then you reassess again you're thinking well i'm going to see if i can go past them so you're still racing you're still giving your absolute best in the circumstances that you're in um and i think people that's the kind of thing people should be doing a bit more of and not being fixed on that 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 intention from before you start a race and you just you you actually don't know how you're going to feel when you're in the race at all. You can have done your training perfectly and your taper's been fantastic. You don't you don't know for sure how you're going to feel when you're in that race. So um, it's maybe just taking the time to reassess and and to create. Um, more realistic goals as you exactly. go through a race and, and
0: probably my final point on all of this is I think Alred sums it up really well he says when you're in that position that you've just talked about where maybe things aren't going exactly where you expected them to be you know, you're know, you not meeting the intention you set out with he calls that the ugly zone and he tells you to embrace that because it's a learning zone, it's where you're, you're, you're learning loads and from that will come rich information yeah. that next time you go again, because we all go again it will be better
1: yeah, it's like the old uh, Michael Jordan thing, isn't it? That he had the uh, highest scoring rate ever. But he also had the most misses of any NBA player as well. But he kept trying kept trying. Absolutely. And I think that's quite important. Okay, I think... Uh, we'll probably wrap it up here, James. Uh, I think we're probably close to an hour already, maybe. Um, So, uh, as we mentioned earlier, the next episode, we'd like to take this idea of adaptability a little bit further.
0: Yeah, and I'd be really keen, Paul, to hear your story, because I feel like I'm, and rightly so, because of how we've got to the conversation today. We've talked a lot about corporate life and racing and stuff, but I'd really like to hear your backstory, how you went from being Paul Giblin, the mountain biker the pilot, the dj the disco dude or whatever you want to be called to become (laughs) disco dude disco (laughs) disco dude giblin (laughs) to become well what we are today so let's talk about that next time
1: cool no bother
0: now actually there was something that actually sparked a thought on this um which might be a nice thing to leave our listeners with in terms of A a final point on adaptability and maybe something that's quite left field. So let's cue the jazz music. Ultra running, jazz music. Obviously they go hand in hand. What else would we talk about on this podcast? It's January 1975. Keith Jarrett, the greatest pianist of his generation, a virtuoso jazz musician, is in Cologne to play at the Opera House. There are 1500 people scheduled to come and it is sold out. Vera Brandes, The young, impetuous promoter is scared. It is a massive risk for her to put on this show, She's put everything into it, heart and soul over months, and to get Jarrett to come was a massive coup. Jarrett had one condition, and that condition was the piano he had to use. A Bossendorfer piano he wanted for the show. Jarrett didn't play with sheet music, every show was unique, that's what he did. He was a jazz musician after all. He gets to Cologne, he gets to the opera house, and he walks onto the stage where the piano's sitting under the lights. And right away, he knows there's something wrong, and Brandis sees it. The piano's not big enough, it's not the piano he asked for. He sits down to play at it. The lower range is muffled. The top range is tinny. They're unplayable. And furthermore, the whole piano's out of tune. He walks out, refusing to play. And if he'd walked away, we would have missed perhaps one of the greatest performances of all time. So how did he come back? Brandis literally chases him out on the street, begging for him to come back in, begging for him not to go away In a rainy cologne day. She's actually crying, and he does it for her, and he goes back in. They arrange for tuners to come, and they tune the piano up, but nothing can be done about the lower and upper range, so he's left with just the mid-range to play with, and he puts in the performance of his life. He creates a performance that leaves the crowd awestruck. The piano wasn't loud enough for the whole crowd to hear. So he had to play it harder, harder than he's ever played before. He had to play notes in a range that he'd never been restricted to before, but that restriction infused his creativity and made him play the best-selling jazz live album of all time with almost 4 million copies sold. If that's not adapting to circumstances, I don't know what is. Paul, last week you ambushed me um, at the end of You ambushed me. I knew this was coming, James. (laughs) I haven't slept for a week thinking about this. You know
1: this is all I've been doing is rehearsing. Uh, Well here we go. Answers to
0: I want you to describe Paul Giblin in five words.
1: Wow. That's unfair, James. (laughs) That's really unfair. (laughs) <laughs> okay uh, kind committed loving determined and brave
0: that's a nice handful of words man leave it at that is that five? that's your it? five wow yeah.
1: <laughs> so many words to choose from that's the first that came to the top of mind I'll so, always, yeah. go
0: with what, always go with what comes to mind first because they're more often than not right well done man
1: i'm love I'm, I'm loving this feature james i am gonna hammer you <laughs> next week it's gonna be great
0: <laughs> yes this will not be a regular feature
1: <laughs> <laughs> it will be next week certainly and then it's not going to be a feature anymore So thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to hear more, then please subscribe, leave us a comment, and share it on social media. We'd love to have many more of these conversations on living the ultra life, where we'll talk further about the people, the places, the culture, and the training behind our running lives. I'm Paul Giblin. I'm James Stewart. Until next time on the Pylon Ultra Pod.